What a day. What a day. Do y'all like the weather today? For an Arctic duck. Yeah, I didn't realize until I was on the way to class tonight that the reason everything was going so screwy all day was because I was talking about spiritual warfare and demons tonight. So, Of course, we always say that happens, but it's the Chafer Conference that's coming up, and whenever you get within three weeks of that, everything starts going a little haywire. It's almost like we're doing something right. Okay, a couple of... Um, I had them here a minute ago. Announcements. Chafer Conference, we still need cookies and snack donations. And if you can help, you can sign up in the fellowship hall. The deadline to sign up is March the 5th. And then we also will need the Sunday before that conference. We'll need a few, uh, it says a few good men. Jesus said, who, who is good? We will need a few good men to stay after church March the 10th to set up tables and things of that nature in preparation for the conference. Also, following the conference, we sent out another email, went out yesterday, about the film on March the 14th dealing with the Moses controversy. It's on March 14th, March 16th, and March 19th. Also, the men's prayer breakfast and deacons meeting is March 16th, and the church picnic on April the 13th. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Spirit and cleansed of sin. And then we, and so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Oh, Father, it's just good that we can come together tonight to settle down, think about your word, think about your provision for us, learn eternal truths that are necessary for our spiritual growth, our spiritual protection, our spiritual advance. Father, we have a number of requests that we pray for continuously. Uh, two tonight that come to mind have to do with... Uh, uh, obtaining visas, one for Pastor Eliel down in Brazil, who wishes to come up for the pastor's conference, and another for Oleg Lazinski, who is the, at uh, Word of God Bible College and the director there who has already been told he can't get a visa. But we pray that that will reverse itself and that the wheels can be turned to uh, make that decision change so he can come to the U.S. with Jim Myers this summer. Father, we pray for us that we might um, be faithful to your word, that we might uh, have a true desire to internalize your word, make it part of our thinking, to totally assimilate it, that we think as you think, and that we respond and react to life as you would have us respond and react to life. Help us as we go through this material tonight to understand how you have provided for our protection in spiritual warfare, in the angelic conflict, that we might uh, implement these things and glorify you, we pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, and we're going to continue to talk about putting on the armor of God and understanding this issue of spiritual warfare. And we stand firm in this passage we stand firm by putting on the full armor of God. That very phraseology tells us that this, because it's addressed to believers, that putting on the armor, all the things that are talked about here, uh, the breastplate of righteousness and girding up your loins by, by means of truth, all these things are for the believer to do. They're not talking about our position 
positional realities. That's covered in Ephesians 1 through 3. Here it's talking about that which we need to appropriate in order to stand firm, in order to be uh, to exhibit the, and stand in light of the victory that we have in Christ. Uh, just by way of review, our passage is in 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, where in 5, 8 we're told to be sober, which means to think clearly. The only basis for a good, solid thought is the Word of God, because the Word of God describes reality. Reality is... Ha- to look at things as God has created them and as he has allowed them to be corrupted because of sin. This is a great dividing line that we see between liberals and conservatives. Liberals do not believe man is inherently evil. And this is why you get rise to these, these philosophies of government that are utopic, socialism, Marxism, these are do not recognize the sinfulness of man, and as a result, they'll always fail. And anybody who doesn't believe in the total depravity of man is, is a Pollyanna. They're living in a made-up world, and they're not uh, aligned with reality. So we have to start. The only way we can be sober, and that means to remove uh, wrong influences and distractions from the life uh, is to immerse ourselves in the Word of God. Be vigilant means to watch out. Be careful because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We saw the illustration from Job. And then we're given the command in 1 Peter 5, 9 to resist him. Key word, on this day me, we either see that form of the word or the root word, his day me, show up in Ephesians 6, 10 through 17, unspiritual warfare. It's an aorist active imperative indicating that this should be a priority. It is emphasized, it's highlighted, and we do it by being steadfast. Rephrase that. We do that steadfast, it's a noun, by means of the faith. That which gives us stability is what we believe. It's the teaching of the Word of God, the verses we've memorized, everything that we know about the Word of God that is in our soul, that's what fortifies us. We are steadfast, we're stable, we're unshakable by means of the faith, not by means of experience. I always like to go back and talk about the fact that today in things that are going on in Christianity, the emphasis is so much on emotion emotional music, emotional testimonies, emotional preaching, and it it gets away from the content of the Word. It's the Word that gives us that that stability. It's the Word that informs us of who God is and what He's provided for us. And that doesn't mean that there's no emotion in the Christian life. It's just that the Christian life isn't driven by emotion. Emotion isn't a criterion a criteria in the Christian life, uh, and emotion certainly can't provide any measure of stability uh, in the Christian life. So we're steadfast by means of the faith, by means of what we believe. We went on to talk about what the Bible teaches about victory in temptation or victory in testing, going to our key passage in Ephesians 6.10, understanding how we are to be steadfast in the faith. That's the command. Um, that's the statement in in um, excuse me in First uh, Peter five. But <clears throat> the command is to resist him. That word, that idea, is dominates what we find in in Ephesians six ten to seventeen. So we're to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And then the command to put on, which means it's like putting on a suit of clothes. We put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. That's our word. That you may be able uh, to stand against the wiles or the strategies, actually, of of the devil. So when we look at at 1 Peter uh, 5, uh, 9, what we're told is is to stand firm. And this tells us how we stand firm. It's by putting on 
the whole armor of God. Now, uh, Gordon Olson has produced a translation. He calls it an enhanced translation. This is what it looks like. It's a hardbound book. Uh, we ordered copies of this. We got 96 copies for the Chafer Conference. That means y'all can buy it too. And it is... It, it, he, he's been in ministry for 60 years, has had a very interesting sort of trajectory theologically, because, and it's similar to mine. He started off kind of where he is now, but then when he went to Dallas Seminary, he came under the influence of the mo, uh, strongly moderate Calvinism at Dallas, uh, was influenced by that. But then after he got out and, and got in ministry and started teaching, he started recognizing that there were a lot of exegetical weaknesses in a Calvinistic theology. And so it's been sort of his life's work. And he's done uh, just outstanding work in terms of word studies and grammar and produced a book called Beyond Calvinism and Arminianism, which is an outstanding book. And the third edition that's out now, and we did get some copies of that for the conference as well, uh, those will be uh, available then as well. But uh, somebody about nine years ago when he was 80 years old, you can do the math, uh, nine years ago when he was 80 years old, somebody said, why don't you do a complete translation of the New Testament? So at 80, he embarked on the task of doing a full translation, and it's a combination of translation and um, sort of an amplified, he calls it an enhanced translation. So it, uh, I've been looking through it, he has a lot of uh, other little th- goodies in here, uh, sort of a one thing that he calls the um, four-in-one story of the Lord Jesus, where he's blended the four gospel accounts together. Uh, He's got, uh, of course, all the New Testament books laid out. He's got a section at the back that talks about word studies for pastors and and scholars. He lists uh, passages where he thinks there were major mistranslations and where he's strongly corrected those mistranslations. Uh, Anyway, uh, I don't have the invoice yet. I think this is going to go for a minimum donation of $10. We're not collecting anything. Uh, Gordon also had a heart attack six weeks ago. He's uh, doing well. He's recovering. His wife has got a recurrence of cancer, and she's going through. has to be driven some distance every week or every day uh, to have treatment. He can't drive anymore because of his heart condition. So we need to be in prayer for him and his wife, and I'm saying the same thing. We're going to have this other book that Bruce Baker wrote that's available, and it's also a minimum $10, and just we're going to tell folks at the conference that if you want to throw a little extra in there, because all these people are going through serious medical challenges right now, and have them on your prayer list, but... um, that's going to be uh, an interesting study, too. I've been working my way through some passages. It's like any translation. People come up to me and say, well, what translation do you use? And I hate that question because I choose to use the New King James Version not because it's translated well, but because it's based on at least the closest thing that we have to the majority text in the original Greek. It doesn't leave things out like the... Um, critical text does, omits verses, kicks out the end of Mark and other things like that. And so it's based on uh, a superior text tradition, even though it's only based on the eight or nine manuscripts of the Textus Receptus, which is not a good, I mean, that was very early in the Reformation period. That's not the best uh, tradition. So it's helpful to look at uh, different translations, and it's even helpful at times if you're just kind of confused about the sense of a passage to look at something like the Amplified Bible or in some cases the Living Bible, some of these other paraphrases because that can help you uh, at least get an initial comprehension of a verse that may seem pretty complicated to you. And uh, back in the day when we used a lot of hard copy things, they used to print out a thing called the Parallel Bible. Anybody have a Parallel Bible at any time? 
a parallel Bible would have maybe eight translations and you'd have this big, thick Bible laid open on your desk with two books on each side holding it open and uh, you would go through and you could compare the different, uh, the different translations. Now you can do that with Logos Bible software and with some others you can create your own parallel and have as many translations in parallel as you can possibly put across a computer screen or multiple computer screens. So there's always going to be problems where I'm going to look at a translation and say that's really not so good. He should have done X, Y, or Z. But he, he, um, uh, he's done a pretty good job, especially on the key passages that are debated in the uh, Calvinist-Arminian debate. He's done a, done a very good job there. Of course, that's where he spent most of his life, life work. So th- I put his translation of Ephesians 6.10 there. He says, finally, my brethren, be strengthened by the Lord and by his mighty power. Notice what he does is he sees that at the end there, it's power of his might. And he gets pretty close here with mighty power. Uh, We'll look at this in just a minute. But the command here is the verb in dunamao, and it's ba- the root means to put on clothes, and the it's a present middle imperative. The present imperative indicates this is something you're supposed to do on a regular basis. You either have a present imperative or an aorist imperative. Aorist imperative is emphasizing a priority. Do it now. And present imperative is just talking about something needs to be standard operating procedure in your Christian life. So that's what we have here. The middle voice means that you do it for yourself. You have to do it. God's not going to do it for you. You have to put the armor on yourself. And uh, the imperative, of course, is addressed to your volition, and it's a plural because it's addressed to all believers. So be strong. Uh, in the Lord, that's our, excuse me, yeah, be strong in the Lord, in dunamao has to do with, with strength from the noun dunamis, meaning power. We get our English, we'll see this again in the noun form, we get our word dynamite from this. And there's always some person who doesn't know Greek real, real well who wants to use, you know, the Holy Spirit's our dynamite. That's not how you use Greek or Hebrew. That's that's a, that's fallacious, but it has the idea of strength or power, and we see it in passages like Second Corinthians ten three and four, where though we walk in the flesh, that is our mortal body, we do not war according to the standards of the sin nature. Here, flesh is used in its metaphorical meaning as the sin nature. Why? Because it's an explanation there. It's not really causal, more explanatory. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. That means it's not related to physical things. It's going to be related to spiritual things. That's why Paul says our war is not against uh, flesh. It's against uh, the uh, spiritual powers. Uh, So our weapons of warfare are not of the flesh, but empowered by God for the destruction of fortresses. That's that same idea. God's got to be our power when we're facing testing and challenges in life. We have to learn to think conscientiously so that when the bad things hit and you get a flat tire or you get stuck in the mud, which I did this last weekend, or you get a computer that just doesn't work or whatever the problems are that just hit you right when you're really busy doing something else that you stop immediately and think this is a test. It takes a while, maybe decades before we train ourselves to think, uh, think about that and go, not, not you know, lose our temper, get mad or yell and then go, oops, this is a test. We always come in just a little bit late. At least I do. Second Corinthians ten five, we're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Ultimately, everything is against God. That's what the battles are. It's real easy in our really screwed up political system right now to forget 
that the ultimate enemy is Satan, and Satan has blinded the minds of so many to the truth. And what we need to do as believers is take every thought captive, which is the same thing as being conform, having our thinking conformed uh, to God's revelation. So we see the emphasis in this word that's used here for resist in Ephesians 6.13, that we <clears throat> take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist. James 4, seven says, submit therefore to God. See, it still has to do with authorities. Resist the devil and our passage in 1 Peter 5.9 to resist. These three passages emphasize for us that it's a defensive idea. Antistemi means to resist, to stand against, to oppose, and it's used. We have the form histemi in 611, antistemi in 613, and histemi again in 614. And this word histemi means to stand still in a stationary position, and from that it comes to mean to resist or hold your ground when you are under under assault. And I ended last time by going through the illustration of the Fetterman massacre when they, their orders and their mission was to say, stay inside the fortress. There it is. The, it's been rebuilt, Fort Fetterman. I mean, um, not Fort Fetterman. Uh, it's, it's the uh, Fort Phil Kearney. And one... Fetterman took a team out, and instead of being defensive and protecting the woodcutters, he, he was duped, he was deceived, just like Satan deceives us, and he got out from his protection, his defensive posture, and started chasing the Indians and ran right into an ambush, and everybody was killed, and it was the most significant ambush, the ser- most serious ambush and massacre of American troops until we got to Custer's Last Stand, which was just um, a few miles north of that location. So let's look at what we see here in terms of what the Scriptures teach, in terms of uh, defensiveness, in terms of histemi, in Exodus 14, 13, and 14. The Israelites are coming out of Egypt, and they are uh, backs up against the, the Red Sea, and Moses says, do not fear, stand by, and that's the word histemi, stand by, stand against. What's interesting here is that the Hebrew, there's, there's about four different Hebrew words that are used to translate, that are translated in, as histemi in the um, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. About 16 of them are in a military context and clearly talk about standing against an enemy. So that, that you know, it's inter- again, I just ran across that this last week as I was studying and realizing that, that New Testament ideas come, always come out of the Old Testament. That's, that's the root idea and that the Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Think about what I taught you last time, that whole story about the Fetterman massacre. They're in a defensive position. They're in a fort. They're protected. There's no way the Indians... There's not a lot of Indians. Now, they had 2,000, and that was a lot, but they knew that there weren't many more and that they could not afford to lose many warriors in any engagement. So they wanted to make sure they had... Uh, an upper hand before they engaged with uh, the American soldiers because usually the American soldiers had better firepower and they could pick off a lot of them. So they didn't. They they wanted to make sure they didn't lose too many uh, too many lives, and so they weren't going to attack a well fortified uh, a well fortified position. Now, if we take this metaphor and we apply it to the Christian life. We're to stand firm in the defensive uh, of, of God's armor. We don't get out on our own, and we don't engage the enemy on our own. When we do, we are exposed and we're vulnerable, and we, we, we assume the role 
that the Lord Jesus Christ is supposed to carry out. See, see, in 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 a position like this, we're hold the ground. Satan is attacking us, and he's going to be hit from the flank by the Lord Jesus Christ, because no human being has the ability to look at a situation and determine what Satan is doing. You have to be omniscient on the one hand. And on the other hand, you have to be able to see into an invisible arena. And we can't see into that invisible arena, so we're fighting blind. And this is what happens when you get Christians who think they are to engage the devil. None of this language here is offensive. It's not going on the offense, and it's not talking about engaging the enemy. So it's all about resting. This is really a great picture for mo- the most part, even though it's the shield of faith, which really means, as Gordon Olson translated it, I thought was really well done. I translated it the shield of trust. That's what the shield of faith is. It's, it's trusting. It's believing God's provision. It's that application of faith. So we're told initially to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And this word finally has the idea of in light of what's been going on before, this is how we fight the war. In light of our wealth, chapters 1 through 3, in light of our walk, in chapters uh, 4 down through 6, 9, because once you understand your wealth in terms of your position of Christ, and then you practice your walk, your Christian life, that prepares you then to engage the enemy in spiritual warfare. So those are the three divisions that we see in our study of Ephesians. So we're strong, and then you have these two phrases translated in English with the English preposition in, but if I were translating this, I would change that in to by means of because it emphasizes in can be in the church, you know, inside the building. It's, it, it has to do with, with a, a spatial uh, meaning or, or in terms of s- sphere, but in also relates to means, the instrument by which we do something. So here it is, my, finally, my brethren, be strong by means of the Lord and by means of the power of his might. Now, that phrase that we see there at the end, well, before I get there, let me, let me look at where this is used elsewhere in Ephesians. It's the exact same phrase. Isn't that interesting? It always kind of gets me when you have somebody, some translation, and you have the phrase in one chapter, and then the identical phrase in the Greek four chapters later, and the author does that because he wants you to connect the dots. But when the English translators don't translate it the same, then you don't realize it's the same and you don't connect the dots. In Ephesians one nineteen, we have... A, a prayer of Paul. Of, of Paul, it's a, the second major sentence in the first chapter, coming after his uh, eulogy there at the beginning, his his statement of God, uh, blessing God, why we are uh, for all of what God has provided for you, for us. And in Ephesians one nineteen it says, "And what is the exceeding greatness of His power?" Now, power there is dunamis. But you have the same English word at the end of the sentence, which is not a translation of dunamis. So I would say, I would have translated uh, the exceeding greatness of his ability, something like that, because dunamis often emphasizes, you know, your ability, what we can do. Um, his, the greatness of his ability toward us who believe. That's another example here of why it's talking about this corporate body of Christ. Us who believe is talking about that the, the corporate body of Christ, those who are in Christ, according to the working of his mighty power. And see, in the Greek, it's the same phrase here, it's not, and it's not translated, the power of his might. 
It's translated, I think, as it should be, where uh, might is the, uh, one is the adjective that's modifying the other noun. Uh, But we have another problem in terms of translation because the word that is translated, as it's translated in the, uh, in the, English of the New King James, it's translated by means of the strength of his might. And if you're going to translate it that way, you should be consistent because kratos down here is might. Okay? So it should be translated the might of his strength, which is actually how Harold Honer translated it in his commentary on Ephesians. Uh, so it should be translated, my, my translation of this is finally be strong by means of the Lord and by means of his mighty power. And the emphasis there is on his omnipotence, on the fact that God can do whatever he needs to do to accomplish whatever he wants to accomplish. Somebody always comes up with some little conundrum to say, well, if God can do anything, can he make a square circle? You know, these little idiot logical things, uh, puzzles they try to come up with. No, God is able to do anything. He's able to do anything that he desires to do. There is nothing more powerful than him. He's more powerful than anything in his creation, and he's more powerful than any creator. And since nothing exists that is not part of his creation, no sentient being exists that is not his creature, then God is more powerful than anything, uh, anything that there is. So this is the command. We are to be strong. That's emphasized as an aorist imperative by means of the Lord and by means of his mighty power. So when, when you look at this in terms of everything that, that Paul has said before this in Ephesians 6, you realize this is the, 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 that strength lies in our position in Christ and what he's provided for us if we're walking uh, by the Spirit. And then we come to verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Again, this is one of those verses that needs to have a, a bit of translation in order to help, uh, help understand what this means. It starts off with the command to put, on, to put on the full armor of God. And this is a verb. It's related to the verb that we found in, in 610 to, uh, um, excuse me, it's not. It's, this is the clothing verb. It just sounds like. Uh, in duo, put on the full armor of God. And this is the idea of just putting on a set of clothes. You just put it on. It's an aorist middle imperative. I'm going to break it down. I don't always break down the grammar because it's not always the part of speech and the parsing of the verb is not always exegetically significant. But here it is. It's an aorist imperative, which follows the aorist imperative of of uh, being strong in the Lord. And the aorist imperative means that it's a priority. And the middle voice means that you have to do it for yourself. Nobody else is going to do it for you. It, it's your volition. You have to put that armor on uh, yourself. And then it talks about the full armor of God. And this is what's going to be explained in terms of six different pieces of armor that are used uh, to as a metaphor for God's protection for us. Put on the full armor of God for the purpose. This indicates the purpose of putting on the full armor of God, and the purpose is that we will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And the word for stand firm goes back to histemi, which simply means to stand still in a stationary position. Do not go on the offensive, but stay in a defensive posture, resting in the power and the provision of God. And we stand against the schemes of the devil. And 
And the word there is methodeia, which is where we get our English word method, but method isn't exactly the best translation. It, in Greek, it means the craftiness, the cunning. Who's the most cunning, crafty creature in, in the Garden of Eden? It's the serpent. It's Satan. So, uh, in do, uh, I mean, excuse me, methodeia means craftiness, cunning, deception, at strategy, schemes. All of this are various nuances of, of the word methodeia. So we need to stand firm against the deceptions of the devil, of the strategies and schemes as he is seeking uh, ways to uh, cause us to fail and to uh, not uh, trust, uh, trust in, in, in God's provision for us. On the defensiveness of this, I thought it was interesting as I was going through Dr. Honer's uh, massive commentary on Ephesians. Dr. Honer was the head of the New Testament department at Dallas Seminary from the early 70s until probably until he retired, but I think he may still have been. He died about 10 years ago, and he was uh, quite good. I never had him for a course. But I've talked to some men who had him for for Greek courses and said he was just absolutely the best of the best. And he taught Ephesians, which was a third-year exegetical course at, at Dallas Seminary, and he taught it for about 40 years, 30, 35 to 40 years. And he wrote a commentary that's about three inches thick on on Ephesians, and when it came out... Uh, the general response was that it was the most exhaustive commentary ever written uh, on on Ephesians, and it's very technical. In fact, he one of the things I like about it is he didn't dumb it down by putting all the Greek words into English transliterations. He assumed that anybody who was going to read a commentary like that needed to know how to read Greek. And he keeps saying this all the way through this. I, I, I kept thinking, I wonder if he read Tommy's in my book on spiritual warfare. Um, because he keeps saying this. He says, they are told not to attack the devil or advance against him. They are only to stand, hold the territory that Christ and his body, the church, have conquered. Without the armor of God, it is certain that believers will be deceived and defeated by those schemes of the devil. So you're like Fetterman. You get away from your defensive armor, from your defensive position, and you get out on your own, and you can't see your enemy because he's invisible, and you have no idea what he, what is actually going on, and you're outnumbered, and you're out out uh, maneuvered, and you uh, don't have the power of, of Satan or his hosts of demons, and so you'll be defeated. It's a guarantee for defeat. And when you understand that in our era, for the last 40 or 50 years, coming out of the charismatic uh, uh, environment, people have been taught a totally fake view of spiritual warfare. And I used to say years ago that there were three bridges between non-charismatics and charismatics. Uh, The first is worship. The second is spiritual warfare. And the third was healing. What did I leave out that is just really obvious that most people think is the main issue with charismatics? That's right, John, speaking in tongues. Because that's not a bridge. Because, see, most evangelicals who are not charismatic, they focus on that as the issue, and they don't believe in speaking in tongues. But wait a minute, maybe you guys have some good ideas on worship and you're coming up with these uh, contemporary choruses and all this is kind of good and people just get sucked into a charismatic theology and framework because uh, uh, they they get sucked into that emotional feel-good worship or spiritual warfare. Oh, we know there's spiritual warfare. You believe in spiritual warfare. I believe in spiritual warfare. And so they'll say about 80% that's right and true. And then they throw in all this offensive action in there, and people get sucked into it. And so that becomes a real problem. And then I'm amazed. I have seen 
believers, really solid believers, get in health situations where they will try anything, anything to get a solution. It's like their ability to think rationally just went out the window. And they will spend unbelievable amounts of money on quackery just in the hopes that somehow it'll make things better. And and so they'll go. And they'll go get healed by Benny Hinn or somebody else and get sucked into the whole thing. And and this has infiltrated evangelicals. The last thing in the world you and I like to hear is somebody come up and say, see, we're just better than you are. We pray for sick people, and we really believe God's going to heal them. And you don't pray for sick people. I can't tell you how many charismatic books I have read that have dogmatically asserted that unless you believe in healing the way they do, you don't believe in healing. You don't believe God heals people because if you did, you'd really uh, claim it in the name of Jesus. And they say this over and over and over again until it gets to the point where people actually believe it and they don't stop and think that that in churches like ours, we have prayer meeting every week. We send out updates and alerts every week. And we expect God to intervene. And sometimes God intervenes uh, through doctors. And sometimes God doesn't intervene. God answers prayer three ways. Yes, no, wait a while. And and I, I when I teach on the doctrine of healing, I haven't done that in a long time. I used to have a list that probably needs to be updated now of all the faith healers who left town when they got a cancer diagnosis and they went somewhere else to go into a hospital so that they could get the best treatment in the world uh, for, can- for cancer. Uh, Dodie Osteen, she, you know, when Joel is doing his thing on, on Sunday mornings, she's got a big Sunday school classroom where they're speaking in tongues and she's healing people. But when she got breast cancer, she went to NB Anderson. And there's a whole list of, of that. So, But that's how God works, works through healing. So when we look at Ephesians 6, 11b to 12, so that you will be able to stand firm against the strategies of, of the devil because, and that's when you get into verse 12, uh, because our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, this is kind of an interesting place to throw a little piece of candy out there for you. Our struggle. I think some translations say, for we do not wrestle, which is probably a better translation of the word pale. Now, that's the noun. The verb is paleo. The verb would be the verb for wrestling. Now, the story that you've heard, other than me, most of you have heard it from me, is that when the Romans came in in about 135 A.D. under Hadrian, after the Bar Kokhba revolt, they were so sick and tired of all these rebellious Jews, they had just decimated the population in the first Jewish revolt and then in this second Jewish revolt. And so they wanted to do two things. Number one, they wanted to obliterate all of these religious sites. So what they did was they just came in and leveled whatever was there uh, left on the temple mount that was remains of the first temple. They just leveled it, and they built a temple. Hadrian built a temple to Jupiter up there. And then he went over about uh, half a half, quarter of a mile away to the, where Jesus was crucified, and he built a temple uh, there. And then he goes down to Bethlehem, where they were already worship, Christians were already worshiping and venerating the site of where Jesus was born, and he levels whatever was there and he builds a temple there. Thank you very much, Hadrian. You marked the spots for us, so now we know where they are. And so, for the next two or three hundred, two hundred years, uh, those Roman temples were there. But the other thing they did was they renamed the sites. They renamed Jerusalem Aeoli Capitolina, 
which is relates to the family name of of uh, Hadrian. And then they decided to rename it. It's not going to be Israel anymore. It's not going to be Judah anymore or Judea anymore. We're going to call it Palestine. And now everybody comes along and says, see, that's a cognate to Philistine. Well, it does sound like it. And you can, you can see that. But the Greeks loved wordplays. They loved puns. And the um, I've seen one argument where, and I, I've tried to prove this, and I don't think it holds water. But where the when the p goes for, when the hard p, like in paleo, uh, when the soft p rather like in Philistine, when it goes goes into Greek, it doesn't harden to a p. Okay, like Palestine, it would still stay soft, like like an f. I don't know if that's demonstrable. But palio means to wrestle. Now, can you think of anybody in the Bible who's known for wrestling? Yeah, Jacob, the wrestler. Jacob, the other name for Israel. So that would be the pun that it's called Palestine because it's this play on words. It sounds like kind of like Philistine, but it's built off of the off of the route for a wrestler. And um, the first place I ran across that is, it's out of print now, but it's The Coming Last Day's Temple by Randy Price. Randy went through the arguments on that. So that's what this word is. It's talking about wrestling. It is uh, a close encounter. It is fighting up close. It's not fighting at a at a distance. And one of the things that's pointed out is that Roman soldiers were trained as wrestlers so that they would have those physical skills when they got up close and personal in, in a, a combat. And so it wasn't, they, they typically got into hand-to-hand combat, so they were always practicing, always wrestling and pr- building their strength, building their skill so that they could survive in the, in the middle of, of combat. So this is uh, the idea here. We are involved in this struggle, and it's the indications that this is a a close struggle. It's a hand-to-hand, face-to-face encounter uh, with the enemy. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Now, when these two terms are used together, it's talking about humanity. It's talking about human beings. Uh, Jesus said, flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God. What do you mean by that? Well, later on it talks about Jesus and his resurrection bodies described as flesh and bone, not flesh and blood. Interesting, because our physical life today, according to Leviticus, life is in the blood. Okay, so there's not blood in a resurrection body because it's, it's of a different order. So our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against humanity. As much as you may not like the Democrats. Uh, it's not against them. It's at the demons that are behind them. Okay? It is the demons who are constantly influencing Republicans and Democrats and Libertarians away from the Word of God. Some people will accuse me because I do vote Republican that I'm just a, whatever it is, you're just a Republican. No, that's not true. I'm a Biblicist. And I'm always a biblicist, and I have, as you've heard me teach through this back in 2008, I went through a series on decision-making in the voting booth, which you might want to bone up on uh, as we enter into the next election, that based on the five divine institutions plus God's view of Israel and the Abrahamic covenant, those are the real issues for the decisions we make in the voting booth. And we're never going to get anybody, well, I won't say never, but aside from some mature Christians, we're not going to get anybody who really understands those five issues or six issues the way they should. But we need to pick on the one who's closest to it, who's going to defend personal responsibility, which it means they're not going to be in favor of a welfare state. They're, they're going to defend marriage, biblical marriage. I don't like the term traditional marriage. We don't believe in marriage between a man and a woman because it's traditional. We believe in it because it was 
created that way by God. God is the one who designed men and he designed women to be the way they are to express a feminine soul and a masculine soul. Now, when people hear that, they say, well, what about people who think they're a woman trapped in a man's body? It's the sin nature, folks. It's the corruption that comes from their sin nature. That's just the way it manifests in them, uh, as opposed to other people. Uh, you know, other people are are prone to drug addiction. They're prone to alcohol addiction. They're prone to lying. Uh, they have all kinds of sins that come out of their sin nature. And then there are some people whose sins uh, lie in that direction. And the solution is always the grace of God and the sanctifying ministry of the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And so, so we have to recognize those, those divine institutions. The third one is, is, um, is family. We have to keep the family together, and the government stays out of the family. But you have situations now, I'm hearing it's happening in several places. I'm hearing it's happening in Connecticut, where the government wants to uh, impose their control over homeschoolers. Now, why is that? A lot of this, and see, it's leaking in these uh, bills that I've talked about that, are, that have been uh, put forth for the Texas, uh, Texas legislature, that <clears throat> what, what's happening is the militant LGBTQP crowd is out there trying to continue to break down biblical marriage and the biblical family because that is the foundation for a cohesive society and teaching and educating for the next generation. And so it's, it, it's just that constant pecking away and, and erosion. So if, if it was one thing when the battle was secular humanism, but when you get sexual perversion as your primary motivation, sex is a is a foundational motivation for a lot of people. And when that becomes the motivation, they're getting into high gear to destroy homeschooling because they know that, that homeschoolers are primarily coming from a, a position where they believe in religious, I'm using that term specifically, religious absolutes because you have Mormons, you have uh, Orthodox Jews, you have Christians, and <clears throat> and you have Muslims. Of course, nobody wants to go after a Muslim anymore because that's politically incorrect. But those religious systems all hold to uh, to forms of biblical marriage, and that it's a responsibility. And they hold to the the third divine institution that the family is responsible for the training of the children, and the state wants to usurp that control. And now that they're being motivated by sexual perversion, they're really ramping up in, in to high gear, and they're targeting the family this way. They target the family in, in income tax. Uh, if you go back and look at the tax code back in the 50s, if you were a, f a family of four, you hardly paid any income tax if you were in the middle class because you got all these tax exemptions if you were married, so that supports uh, second divine institution. Now you have a marriage penalty. If you're married, the couple together will pay more taxes than they would if they just filed individually as singles. And you have the family. So if you're raising two kids, well, let's give them all the money they make because we need to uh, be able to strengthen the family. And so the tax code starting in the 70s started to ramp up uh, the percentage of tax that was due if you were a family. And so that's anti-family. And so the, our, our government started attacking these divine institutions in, in very subtle ways. Then you have the divine institution of government and we've lost the idea of what government is and and people on the on the on the radical left uh, are just anti-authority and they hate government they hate authority that's at the very root of a lot of these groups from black lives matters to various anarchist groups and then you have the nationalism and that's being attacked because uh, president trump wants to take a strong stand that nations need to define themselves and protect their borders. And that's always been true. And God's the one 
who establish the borders. That's what Paul says in Acts 14. God established the borders and for the nations. So it's always an attack against God because God is the one who ultimately established the divine institutions, and of course it's God who established and called Abraham to establish Israel. So it's always a fight against God. So our struggle, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the uh, world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness, in the heavenly places. So we have several places where you have rulers, archon, which means those who are first or those who are at the top, the rulers and powers, that's authorities. Uh, and this relates in, sometimes it's to human government, sometimes it describes uh, the angelic hierarchy of authorities and government, and sometimes it relates to uh, it relates to the demons. Now, it came to my attention recently that a Dallas seminary professor that I never hear anything good about, uh, and he's very um, very influential in the Old Testament department, and he teaches here in Houston, and he argues that authority and headship wasn't around until after the fall. See, it's that kind of garbage that's coming out of seminaries today because they can't stand firm on the issues of gender and they can't stand firm on the issues of authority in the home and in relationships. And so here we have an issue where there's authority, authorities and powers that go back before the creation of man into eternity past among the angels. There's authority not to mention the authority that's within the Godhead. The idea that authority comes in post-fall is the idea that somehow there's something inherently wrong with authority. And once you start teaching that, the consequences don't show up for a couple of generations down the road. So in Ephesians 3.10, just to look at Ephesian passages that use this phraseology, to the intent that now the manifold or multifaceted wisdom of God might be known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Is that talking about fallen angels or elect angels? Doesn't say, does it? That's because both of them are organized the same way. So it relates to the testimony of the church to the angels. Then you have... Um, Colossians, a sister letter to the epistle to the Ephesians. Colossians one sixteen. For by him are all things. By him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. See, that's talking again about. The angelic hosts, whether they are fallen angels or whether they are elect angels. And then in Colossians uh, 2.10, same thing. You have, you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. So that's talking about Christ who is the head or the authority over the angels. There it would probably be the elect angels. But what did he do at the cross? Colossians 2.15, he disarmed principalities and powers. That would be the fallen angels. And he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. He defeated Satan at the cross, but he's still fighting. It's sort of like after in the war between the states, after Gettysburg, there really never was a chance for the Confederacy to win. They were really defeated at Gettysburg, but it took another two years before they, they surrendered. And that can be uh, the analogy here is that uh, Satan was defeated at the cross, but until he is sent to the lake of fire, he's going to keep fighting. So we have our struggle against rulers against the powers, and then the next phrase is the world forces of this darkness. And this is the interesting word cosmocrator. 
Cosmocrator is a compound word. Cosmos at the beginning refers to, is from the Greek word cosmos, uh, meaning uh, meaning the world. And so it would be accurately translated as world uh, powers or world rulers or cosmic. And I always spell that with a K when I'm talking about the Greek word cosmic for cosmos, uh, the world system, cosmic authorities. And so these, uh, it's, what's interesting is that demons are the power behind the false religious systems in the world. Uh, demons are invisible, and that's one way that they are fighting. That's one way that they infiltrate the thinking of humanity and why we are to take captive every thought for Christ. And we're told both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that these demons empower the idols. For example, two passages from the Old Testament in Leviticus 17.7 they shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons. Now, what the Canaanites were doing was they weren't worshiping demons overtly. They were worshiping Baal and Moloch and all of these other gods and goddesses. But what this passage is saying, what God's revealing is the power behind those false gods and all false gods. You study mythology. You study uh, Greek mythology, you study the mythology of the uh, 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 American Indians, you study Norse mythology with Thor, and you study uh, Roman, all, all the ancient cultures and their mythology. Those were different systems that the demons used to teach false doctrine, to get people away from the truth of the creator God of, of the Bible, the creator God from Genesis 1. Not the, just the creator God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because the, the creator God of the Bible started long before them. He's infinite, and he has been there ever since the beginning of creation. So Leviticus 17.7 says, they shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons. So when you look at a, at a, a Hindu with all their huge pantheon of gods, they're worshiping demons. Okay, when you're looking at a Buddhist, they're worshiping demons. When you're looking at a Muslim, they're worshiping, they're worshiping a demon. When you're looking at a Mormon, they're worshiping demons. Uh, when you look at Islam, that's why we can, we can say on the authority of these passages that Allah is a demon if he's not the devil himself. Only God stands alone. Deuteronomy 32, 17, they sacrificed to demons, not to God. To God's lowercase, they did not know. To new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. Well, some people may come along, liberal theologians come along, see, see that was just their, their, their very uh, primitive view of things. But wait a minute, you get into the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10, 20, and 21. Paul says, in talking about the issue of meat sacrificed to idols. Now listen, we have an interesting present-day conundrum. Anybody think of an example where you have to make a decision as to whether or not you're going to eat meat sacrificed to idols? That's right. You go to Costco, I, they have good lamb. But I found out last year when Sharam Hadian was here that all of their lamb products are halal. That means they were slaughtered as worship to Allah. So that's a real-time today issue. Are you going to buy uh, lamb? And you have to learn what the halal symbol is so that whenever you buy anything at the grocery store, you can decide whether or not you're going to buy meat sacrificed to idols. Now, that's what Paul's talking about here. Uh, rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Now, Paul said, look, we know that there's no, demon, there's no God there. 
And we know that just because you go eat meat that's been sacrificed to a demon, it doesn't mean anything. You're not going to pick up a demon. See, that's what the charismatics will say. I remember when Hal Lindsey came out with his second book, Satan is Alive and Well on Planet Earth, and he gives an illustration of a family who had picked up an artifact, a Buddhist artifact, in India and brought it home, and then they discovered that there was a demon associated with it, and that's why they were having all these horrible things happen to them. That's when I knew that Hal was slipping. Uh, that, that was really bad. He also, in that book, uh, decided he was no longer going to be a non-charismatic. He didn't personally speak in tongues, but he said, you can't really prove that tongues has ceased. So that was a problem. So Paul clearly states that, that what's behind these false religions, what's behind false philosophies, what's behind false political philosophies demons it's satan and that's who we are wrestling against so the solution then comes up in verse 13 where it starts getting into the specifics of how we stand firm and we'll come back to look at that next week before the chafer conference remember next week and everybody's listening next week we have class but the next week is the thursday night at the conclusion of the Chafer Conference. And there will not be class that night. So you can go see that film on uh, the Moses debate on that Thursday night. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be reminded of all that you've provided for us that strengthens us, that stabilizes us, that enables us to stand firm against the strategies, the wiles, the um, deceptions, the cunning of Satan. We don't need to see him. We don't need to attack him. We just need to stand firm in your truth. We need to know what your word says. And we need to use it, apply it, assimilate it, internalize it. And that is what gives us strength. Father, we pray that you challenge us to be more biblical, more focused on the scripture than we've ever been before. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.